Good morning, everybody. Today is a good morning because Jesus still reigns. Amen. Today is a good day because God still sits on his throne. Amen. Today is a good day because despite what you might think or what you have heard, Christ's church still lives and is thriving in today's world. Amen. It's important for us to recognize today as a good day because today we're going to talk about some complex and challenging issues. It's because we're in the book of Revelation and it's a challenging book. And we're in the middle of this book that is often daunting and intimidating to some or a bed of conspiracy for others. You know, when people don't know what to do or how to treat something, we often abuse it. And Revelation has had its fair share of abuse over the years. And so in this series, Tracy and I are attempting to make the book of Revelation far more approachable, far more relevant for us today. What does this book have to say to us? We're coming off of Tracy's sermon last week where he covered Revelation chapter 12, where we were introduced, of all things, to a dragon. It's like, what am I reading? And we talked about that as the representation of the Satan, the Satan, the devil, the embodiment of evil. And chapter 12 ends with this dragon, quote, standing on the sand of the sea. Now, we have to remember that the book of Revelation is written from a vision given to the follower and disciple of Jesus named John. So John is witnessing these miraculous, these symbolic, these very significant images to tell him about a reality of God's kingdom. In this case, he's standing on a beach, which we're pretty familiar with, right? (laughs) We have it in the name of our town, beach. And if you're in the sand of the beach, what can you see right near to you? Water. And how, do, how would you guess chapter 13 of the book of Revelation begins, out of the water comes a beast. A beast. You know, <clears throat> the internet's a funny place. <laughs> and uh, you can find pretty much anything you want, good or bad, on the internet. So I said, you know, I wonder if somebody was going to depict literally, physically, this beast, what might that beast look like? And man, I was not disappointed. Here's an old version of this beast. Um, This is an old tapestry of the book of Revelation. And I don't know about you, this beast looks a little aloof to me, kind of looks like a Dr. Seuss, but there you go. It's still kind of creepy. Now, here is where it gets fun. And uh, some people really have a wild imagination. There's this guy, which I love because they just went straight for dinosaur. It's like... Ten horns, I got you. Dinosaur probably had ten horns, and then all of these other creatures. But, I mean, they're right. If that came out of the water, I would think it's a beast, and I'd be afraid of that. Now, this last one is my favorite because this guy just got lazy. I mean, this guy, he he had basic knowledge of Photoshop and copy and paste, and he just kind of did something with it. And But, again, frightening. All right, so this is our beast, this creature. Here's what we know about this beast from the text, which we're going to read here in a moment, but hold off. Here's what we know. We know that this beast is ferociously hideous, which, yeah, looks pretty hideous to me. It has ten horns and seven heads. It's a conglomeration of a leopard and a lion and a bear. 
We'll come back to that. But for right now, we know ferociously hideous. Number two, the thing we know, this beast is boastfully blasphemous. This beast does not fear God, which might sound like a level of bravado, but it's going to come off as just foolishness. The third thing about this beast that we know is this beast is murderously tyrannical. Now, this is where the lesson is going to take a turn. This beast rules with an iron fist. He wages war against God's people and leaves their corpse in his trail. And the last thing we know about this beast, number four, is this beast is grave victorious. What do I mean by grave victorious? Meaning this beast dies and seems to come back to life. Like every time we think we have destroyed this beast for good, it rears its ugly head once again. So we're going to break down this beast, but let's read it for ourselves. Now, a little sub note, there's going to be weird misplaced letters. I copied this from my Bible app and it pulled in some of the footnotes and I forgot to take them out. So if you see a weird word, I'll move us past it. All right, here we go. Let's read Revelation 13. Your Bible doesn't have my typo, so I encourage you to read along with us, starting in verse 1. And I, John, saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horn and a blasphemous names written on its head. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. Verse 3, one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? Just a couple more. And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Verse 6, it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Today, we are going to seek to understand that beast. Pretty tall order, I feel like. And we're going to try to figure out this beast and how this beast operates. I'm going to give you two words. Two words that I want you to write down, two words that we're going to use as an outline as we flow through understanding this beast. Because here's the thing, this beast operates through these two words. Those two words being corruption and compromise. Corruption and compromise. It was this way before John wrote this. It was this way as John wrote this. And it will be this way even all the way up to today. This is how the beast operates in the world, through corruption and compromise. But we have to introduce one more word because it's a big but. It's a big word. Satan's power is controlled. Did you notice in verse 5 of chapter 13 that it, the beast, was allowed 
to exercise authority. There is something that seems to rule over the dragon and over the beast. Who rules over them? Who do you think? God. It's God. God provides this, through limitation, this suffering of some kind. God allows his people to paradoxically be protected and persecuted. Let me say that again. God allows, God's people are paradoxically protected and persecuted at the same time. So everything we just talked about, that is a summary of what we're going to talk about today. (laughs) It is complex. It is challenging. It brings fear in many people's life. But we're going to walk through it together. I'm a father of two young boys under two, so I'm used to all of those things, scary, challenging, complex things. So I'll walk alongside with you on this. All right, so let's talk about this first one, corruption. Before we, need, before we understand how this beast operates, we need to understand who this beast is. So I'm just going to lay it out for you right here. John believes that the beast is the state, S-T-A-T-E, the state, right? The kingdoms of the earth the human kingdoms, the political power. Now, where do I get that idea? I get it from this conglomeration of animals that this beast makes up. You have the bear, you have the leopard, you have the lion. And if you're familiar with your Old Testament, as John's readers would have been, this harkens us back to another prophet who had a vision in which beasts of a leopard and a bear and a lion emerge, and that was Daniel in Daniel chapter 7. Lucky for us, Daniel tells us exactly what those symbolize, and that is these nations, Babylon, Assyria, the Philistines, these nations that are oppressing God's people during Daniel's time, and that's the same reality that John is living in, only his nation is a new nation. It's a new beast, and it comes in the version of Rome. But what we're going to find out through this is that the beast represents so much more than just Rome for us. This beast that rises out of the water represents any nation or kingdom that rises out of seemingly nowhere and oppresses God and his people. Before Rome, this beast was represented through other nations and kingdoms, like the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Philistines. This beast was represented through ideologies like communism and totalitarianism. This beast was represented in rulers like Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, Herod, Nero, Domitian, Mao, Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot, and many others. This beast is even represented partly in so-called free democratic countries like Canada and Europe and, yes, even the United States of America. Now, let's pin that up because there is something we need to address right here. This first beast that comes out of the water is often described as the Antichrist. Have you heard that term before? If you have been with us in the series, we have talked in length about the Antichrist. We've broken him down a little bit. But interestingly enough, the word Antichrist doesn't show up in the book of Revelation. Did you know that? It's nowhere in the book of Revelation. In fact, there's five times that your Bible uses the word Antichrist, and they're all combined in 1 and 2 John. 
which just so happens to be the same author as the book of Revelation, but it's not in that book. Now, John still has a lot to say about the Antichrist, and I want to highlight one because it's going to help us understand this beast a little better. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18 says this, Children, brothers and sisters in Christ, fellow followers, listen to this. It is the last hour, and you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. Look, pay attention. So many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. What is the last hour, you might be wondering? Well, it's simply the time between when Jesus ascended after his resurrection into heaven and the time that he will return to us to set things right. So John, at the time of writing this, he is in the last hour. And guess what? We, at the Vero Beach Church of Christ, we are still in that last hour. And who is in that last hour with us? The Antichrist. This anti-Jesus figure. In fact, it is the presence of the Antichrist that actually marks us as being in the last hour. Now, people always ask me, well, Peyton, is there going to be a final Antichrist? And I say, of course there will be. How do I know that? Because there's a final everything. That's what makes it final, right? There's gonna, now, is it going to be grander and more sinister? That's not the point of Revelation or the point of us and what we're talking about here. The point is this. The Antichrist, this anti-Jesus, is already here. And according to John, how does this Antichrist show up? By way of the state, S-T-A-T-E. Satan's kingdom acts through worldly powers. We're going to break that down because we're trying to figure out where does this word corruption come in? How does Satan's kingdom corrupt these worldly powers? We saw it in a little bit of detail in the Sermon of the Four Horsemen. If you haven't listened to that sermon, I encourage you to go listen because what we talked about is this tribulation period, this terrible situation that we're anticipating happening, it's not far off from the world and what the world has already created today. That is because atrocities like the Western trade slave, slave trade, the genocide of Rwanda, dictatorship of Rus Russia, all of these things and more, they testify to the reality of demonic power amplifying sin. That is corruption. Amplifying sin. Satan's kingdom operates through worldly powers, but how do God's people operate in comparison? We operate through courageous faith. True Christians multiply through martyrdom. Have you ever noticed that all of these nations that have been built on power, they have eventually fallen? And yet God's kingdom, which is always the victim of these grand nations, seems to still live and thrive despite them. Why is that? Let me give you an example of why I think through an example uh, of those who supported, those who failed to support Hitler's war. If you were a German Christian, you faced death to not support Hitler. And a pastor by the name of Martin Niemöller, he was one of the hundreds of Christian uh, pastors who refused to support Hitler's war from the pulpit. 
He was thrown in jail because of this. And while he was behind bars, the chaplain came up to him of that prison and said, Brother, why are you in prison? In which Nimola responded, Brother, why are you not? How do we fight against the corruption? We remain faithful. And only the eyes of faith or the retrospect of eternity can we see how the rewards of faithfulness outweigh the cost. Let me give you another example. Boris Kornfeld, a Jewish doctor who became a believer in Jesus and refused to uh, kill prisoners through uh, the Soviet gulags. I don't know if you're familiar with these, basically death camps. Now, because he refused to kill his patients, he was only able to witness to one patient before he himself was brutally murdered. One. Lucky for him, the one patient that he witnessed to eventually accepted Jesus himself, and that conversion multiplied many times over. You may not recognize this man, that one patient, but his name is Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He is a Russian, or was a Russian novelist. He was a prominent Soviet dissident. He was an outspoken critic of communism, and he raised global awareness of the oppression of the Soviet Union, and he was a believer in Jesus and followed him to his death. This first beast rises out of the water. It is ferociously hideous. It is boastfully blasphemous. It is murderously tyrannical, and the waves of assault can be seen in the corruption of worldly powers. But here's the thing. This passage, it reveals so much more of the hideous nature of sin. So let's funnel it down a little bit, because the concrete existence of personal evil from culture to culture is the most empirically verifiable doctrines of the Christian faith. The true horror of sin is found in how the devil operates in the world. He doesn't operate independently. He doesn't just move around in the world pulling hair and tripping people. He works through God's people, through all people. See, it's not just in global superpowers that God or that Satan corrupts, but it's in the average heart like you and I. But this shouldn't be new to us. Paul talks about this in his letter to the Ephesians. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins that you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Let me personify what Paul is saying a little bit, give you a very real example. Human rights investigator Gary Hugen, Haugen, Hugen, Haugen, not sure how you say it, Haugen, he discovered after the Rwandan genocide, here's what he discovered, that it doesn't require a pathological killer to kill other people. His observation, when all restraints are released, farmers, 
clerks, school principals, mothers, doctors, mayors, and even carpenters can pick up machetes and hack to death defenseless women and children. He continues by saying, the person without God is a very scary creature. You know, we're really good at objecting evil when it is quantitatively out of hand, meaning it is so vast there is nothing else we can do but recognize it. What we fail to do is admit that the qualitatively, the evil that brutally crushes families and other people worldwide is the same depravity that exists in my heart in my relationship on a daily basis. In other words, the devil doesn't play by the rules. There is an unimaginable horror that exists within human sin, and many of us wouldn't even believe it possible unless we had insurmountable evidence in our history to tell us otherwise. But there's a shred of hope for those who are willing to grasp it, God is the one, remember, who gives the authority for these things to happen. And he does so so that he can execute his purpose of judging the world by handing the world over to its own evil. Paul talks about this operation in Romans chapter 1, verse 24. He says, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity. So with that in mind, we have to think critically like Martin Luther did whenever he said, even when the devil works his worst, he is still God's devil. And that in no time in history has been clearer than the moment of the cross, when Satan thought he had won the battle, but really he was just playing the cards that God had handed to him. Corruption. It exists. It corrupts us in our global superpowers, but it also corrupts even the most average of us to do the most terrible, horrible things in the name of sin. Let's talk about this second word, compromise. Let's continue reading in Revelation chapter 13, picking up in verse 11. Then I saw another beast. Okay, we have a second beast here rising out of the earth. It has two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of God's people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and not yet, and yet lived. We're not going to spend as much time on this second beast, but we have to recognize that it exists. This second beast comes out of the land and it deceives those who dwell on the land. It familiarizes them with worshiping an image. Now, we're pretty familiar with worshiping, or let's say John's audience is pretty familiar with worshiping an image. Right? Idolatry runs rampant in this world. These moldings of little gods that they can sit down and they can worship, and they had gods of all kinds. So John's audience is familiar to this, but I want to say 
we are far more familiar to idolatry than we may care to admit. The smartphone, and listen, I'm not anti-smartphone. I have one right here. (laughs) I'm not anti-smartphone. But we are, think about it, invested, mesmerized, focused, devoted, I would even dare say addicted to this little thing that has so much more power than I have and that I am trusting will deliver me to happiness or success or at least pleasure. Idolatry. And it sits in our back pocket, but this is also all around us, this economic temptation. We didn't read about it in verse 17. You can read about it later. But it's talking about these seven churches of Asia Minor. We read about these seven churches in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. These churches that were compromising their faith so that they could make business. It was hard to be a follower of Jesus in a world where everybody worshiped God. I'm not going to do business with you. You don't worship the gods. You're going to bring me bad luck. And so these Christians, they would compromise. Okay, I'll make a sacrifice. Okay, I'll attend a party. Okay, I'll do these things just so I can put food on my table. They compromised. But this is just as much true today. I read one Christianity Today interview suggesting that even though bankruptcy rates are 18.6 higher in counties with casinos than those who don't, And suicide rates are an average of four times higher in heavily gambling areas. The government won't do anything about it. In fact, the article goes on to say, quote, gambling industry even gives money to churches and charities. That is the ultimate goal of silencing you through compromise. But is that any different? than the way we compromise our values to the people around us. That we compromise what we hold to be true for what the world wants to be true. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be strategic and sensitive in the way we approach people with the truth. But what I am saying is we seem to care far more about what people think about us or what they think about our church. And is this not a form of compromise? I believe wholeheartedly in 1 John chapter 1, verses 9-10. through 10. It says this, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just. He will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make Him out to be a liar, and His word has no place in our lives. I have a confession of a time that I compromised. And I have been carrying this with me for far too long. And there is no other person I need to come to but my church family to lay it down to. And I'm telling you this, and I'm confessing this with two-part goal. One, for forgiveness, that you will forgive me. But the second one, so that we can have a window to look into how compromise creeps into the most average situations. A couple of months ago, I was getting a haircut at a local barber shop, uh, and I'm a silent patron when it comes to barber chairs. It may seem strange because I can literally sit up here and talk for 
many, many minutes, as many of you have now come to notice. But whenever you put me in a barber chair, silence, just absolute silence. I, I will make awkward co eye contact with the barber and just like look away. Like I don't want anything to do with the conversation. Just cut my hair and get me out of here. So this guy, he knows he's not going to get a lively conversation from me. So he starts talking to the other guys in the shop, which is totally fine. And this guy, they, I mean, they just start talking filthy. And I'm not talking about like, the words they're using. I'm talking about the context of the conversation. It is filthy. It is foul. It is so bad. I will likely never go back to this barbershop. That's my own thing, but I won't go back there for that reason. So they're talking rowdy. This guy's finishing up and he asked me, what do you do for work? And I am ashamed of my answer. I told him that I was in the business of helping people, which is true. I didn't lie to him, but I cared more about the societal pressure of the moment, the awkward tension that it might have created between me and a barber chair and a stranger I would likely never see again. I cared more about that than I did my identity in Jesus. I compromised. Revelation allows no divided allegiance. We have to choose. We have a choice. Do you choose God and what God values? Or do you choose the world and what the world values? And we can't read this passage properly without grasping the rest of the book. That every Babylon in the past has fallen. Every empire that has risen against God and his people has fallen. Because the future doesn't belong to Babylon. It doesn't belong to Rome. It doesn't belong to Hitler. It doesn't belong, just the lights. <laughs> gotcha, God. <laughs> God's like, wrap it up. Come on, let's go. I don't think the AC is working in here anymore. You got to get these people going. <laughs> the future doesn't belong to the United States of America. The future belongs to those who are faithful and who will see the new Jerusalem to come. If you look down at chapter 14, we're not going to read it, but there's a strange number, 144,000. Right? People argue about what that is. It's simply the numbers 12 times 12 times a thousands multiplied together. All words in Hebrew culture, that means completeness. You multiply them together, you get the ultimate completeness of all things. And that's the promise. God's followers will be brought safely to him. They won't be overlooked. They won't be forgotten. God will seal them. He'll protect them from spiritual harm. He will give them the strength and the courage that they need to overcome and move through the persecution. Notice, God will not protect us from persecution. God will protect us through persecution. Because if we learn anything about chapter 13, it's the onslaught of evil that exists in our world today. Two prevailing beasts. We have the beast of corruption. We have the beast of compromise. And they, they seek to destroy everything through sweeping global powers and through subtle barber chairs. 
So let's land this plane. Rubber meets the road. God is the life-giving source of everything in the universe. Everything that is good that we experience, it flows from God. Joy, laughter, pleasure, water, sex, food, water, art, music, everything we have is given to us because of the common grace of God. Common grace meaning everybody gets to enjoy it right now. But the question is raised, what will happen if you now are removed from God's presence? Because that is your choice. You can choose to have autonomy from God in this life and the next. But what you quickly find in that scenario is that you will also find autonomy from everything good that comes from him. And if the beast exposes anything, it exposes this lie that we have told ourselves since the very beginning in the garden, that you can do it without God. C.S. Lewis says it best, better than I ever could. It's a long quote, but it's worth it. He says, there is no other way to happiness for which we were made. Good things, as well as bad, you know, are caught by a kind of infection. If you want to get warm, you have to stand near the fire. If you want to get wet, you must get into the water. And if you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, then you have to get close to or even into the thing that has them. They are not a type of prize that if God could, if he chose, just hand out to anybody. They are a great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. If we are close to it, the spray will wet you. If you are not close to it, you will remain dry. And once a man is united to God, how could he not live forever? And once a man is separated from God, how can he not but wither and die? The book of Revelation, one day God will bring about his ultimate judgment. And he's going to judge humans based off of not one decision that they've made in their life, but of thousands upon thousands of decisions that they've made in their lifetime. Right? You are the total of every decision that you've made. And every choice you make is a vote of the kind of person you want to become. And it's not just a trajectory to the person you'll become later, but it echoes throughout all eternity. Because Lewis concludes this essay by saying there are two kinds of people. Those who say, thy will be done to God, or those to whom God in the end says, thy will be done. And they get to enjoy the horrible freedom for which they have demanded. I want to ask everybody to stand with me. Stretch those legs. Ooh, it's been a while. Oh, good stretching. I want to offer you an invitation. I'm going to ask our elders, Mike and Joe, to begin heading to the back. I'm going to go with them. We have this invitation, this moment, this choice, and everybody has this choice. And you can make a choice today or you cannot make a choice today. You can make it later this week, but it's still a choice you have to make. And your choice is simple. It's always been simple. Choice number one is you choose the way of the beast. You choose to compromise. You choose to let it slide. You choose corruption and to listen to the voice of sin whispering that you don't need God. You can do it on your own. You can continue choosing that. But you have another choice. You can choose God 
and the life that he provides. And that choice, it looks different for every single person in this room. Maybe for you, your choice is, I need to just put my eyes on Jesus. I need to start looking at him for where life in a style of life I want to live. We can talk to you about that. Maybe for you, you're like, I know everything I need to know. I've heard it all, which you have. Everything you need to know, you just heard it. And you're now ready to give your life to Jesus, to be baptized in his name, to be clothed with Christ, to have God's spirit inside of you. You can make that choice. Maybe for others of you, you need to make a choice to be grafted into Christ's body, to join the fellowship that meets here through membership, to be one of us that is now us, it's not just you. You don't attend church, we are the church. Maybe that is your choice, or maybe you need to confess something. Maybe there is something that's been weighing you down. Maybe there's some kind of repentance. All of these things, Joe and Mike and I, we're going to be in the back. And we're ready to pray with you right there. We're ready to help guide you right now. We're ready to help you discover what is your choice and what is the best way you can make it.